In other words, don't worry. Mexico's not going to devalue. Everything is going to be fine. Stay invested. And lo and behold, the government devalues. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And I want to thank you for joining that mission today. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Jay Pulaski. Jay, are you ready to join the mission? I most definitely am. I've been at it for a long time already. You've been on the mission. You have been on the mission. Well, let me introduce you to the audience. Jay has over 35 years of both buy and sell side financial market experience. While at Morgan Stanley, he was ranked number one in institutional investor in both global equity strategy and global asset allocation strategy. He has over 20 years of global macro experience and has spent much of the past 20 years investing his own capital using U.S listed ETFs. His company, TPW Advisory, is a New York City-based independent investment boutique offering global asset allocation and portfolio strategy advice to both retail and institutional investors through its model portfolio delivery service. You can learn more about Jay at Pulaski.com. Jay, take a minute and tell us about the unique value you are bringing to this wonderful world. <laughs> well, thank you, Andrew. And first of all, I'll just simply say uh, it's great to be with you. And it's a wonder of modern technology, right? Here I am in New York City, and there you are. I don't know if you're in Bangkok, but you're yep. in Taiwan. So very cool that we can even do that. Yeah. And I guess I think one of the redeeming features, let's say, of TPW Advisory is that we are independent. And so we marry, you know, my 35 plus years of experience on both the buy side the last 20, 25 years, global macro base. So focusing exclusively on how the world operates across countries and regions, as well as across assets. And I think I have, I've had many years of experience within a top investment bank at Morgan Stanley. And there's a, there's a real difference between, you know, the sausage making that goes into a firm wide view and an independent assessment of that view. And I'm not saying one is more right than the other, but I think the ability to bring to the table a clear, informed, experienced perspective on the markets, to have a model portfolio process that forces one to actually say what one will own and in what size and over what period, one unique feature of TPW Advisory is that the bulk of my own personal capital is invested alongside the model portfolio that is our flagship. We call it the GMA or the Global Multi-Asset Model Portfolio. And so I think clients welcome and appreciate the fact that my own capital is at risk alongside theirs. So this isn't just a pure paper portfolio exercise. And so I would wrap it up and say that I've also experienced to the point of this program, mm. you know, a lot of big down markets, right? I've been in, I was doing emerging markets, 
solely from 1990 to about 1998, 99. So I saw the multiple emerging market crises. In fact, one of the very first was in your neighborhood in Indonesia back in 1987, 88, when the government decided to float subsidiaries of the big companies and everybody thought it was going to be a wonderful market. And of course, the big companies got rid of their worst performing assets and the market imploded. So that was back, you know, centuries ago almost. So that's probably a little bit more of a long-winded answer than you wanted, but we present a informed, experienced, risk-taking with our own capital point of view to the markets. And we write every week. So there's a very clear path that one can follow about what our thinking is. And I think all those things, at least so far, have been of benefit to some and hopefully more once we go through this podcast. Great. And I'll have a link to your website so anybody interested can check it out. I really want to start off with something that you said earlier when we were off the recorder, which is about China. China is such an interesting one right now because, you know, it's such, there's such a dichotomy in views. On the one hand, we thought China was going to roar back, you know, after COVID. It didn't really happen. And then and then the Chinese market's down a lot. It seems like it should be a good performing market in the future. But people have been burnt before. Then you have the political aspect of what's going on in the world right now. In particular, I see that it seems like every, I mean, I'm not in the US, but I watch some hearings and stuff. And I think, is, is there any politician in America that's not on a war path with China? And you've got some views on it. And one of the things that I like about being a sell side person, you know, both of us, in fact, I was also voted number one in the institutional investor magazine as a strategist in Thailand. So a little bit different from big New York City, but in our little way, I, I made it up the little ladder, but tell us a little bit about your thesis about China. And then let's, let's have some discussion about that. Yeah, no, and I mean, hey, congratulations to you. Anytime anyone got, is number one in anything, uh, it takes work. So yeah. kudos uh, to you. And you know, I think the point that I would agree with certainly is that, you know, coming from the sell side, you have to formulate your own opinions, right? And you have to develop the capacity to articulate them. And that is very different from starting out and having a whole career on the buy side where you're fed ideas, right? And then, and it's a it's a menu issue, right? Like which mm. which idea do I pick? Do I pick you know Goldman Sachs? Do I pick J.P. Morgan? So I think there's a lot of benefit to having been at starting one's career on the sell side. I actually started on the buy side and went to the sell side, but most of my career, the last twenty plus years, I've been out of Morgan Stanley actually since '02. So the last twenty years, you know, there's a lot to be said for having to formulate your own opinion, test it, articulate it, and stand by it. And, you know, one of the things we'll talk about when we get into the worst investment idea, and I have several candidates <laughs> having been around for a while, you know, is uh, as a sell-side strategist, when you get something wrong, as you know, I'm sure, or maybe not, maybe you never got anything wrong. I know. But, you know, having to stand up to a sales force, right, yeah. when you've been wrong, and, like, take the heat from people who are really unhappy because they took your advice and recommended it to their clients. And now it's all unfolding. So we can talk about that. Let's talk about China because mm. I am in print with having said recently 
in the last several weeks or the last month or so that I think China is the single best global risk reward opportunity between now and year end that is out there today. And I said both risk and reward, right? right? So there is risk, as you point out, not only the geopolitical risk, but the risk of what's going on in China. The economy hasn't been as robust as people would have thought. You know, there are issues, obviously, China imports energy, oil price at 90 bucks, et cetera. But the question then becomes, how much is in the price? And I would argue that a very lot is in the price. Hmm. Right? Certainly, if you look on a relative valuation basis to the United States, it's record cheap over the last 20 years. If you look at its own valuation history, it's quite attractive. If you look at foreign selling, foreign selling was a record in August and was also very significant in September. I constantly get asked about, well, what about the property market? And my, re my retort is anyone who's worried about the property market in China is not invested in mm. China. Mm. So that is not going to create a new dynamic of, of heavy selling pressure, in my opinion, even if it were to worsen, which I don't expect it to do. So our view is that China is not going to do the bazooka stimulus. You know, they think themselves that the stimulus they put in place in 2012, 2013 was a mistake. And so they're not going to do it again. The question is, are the drips and drabs of the policy response to date going to gain traction such that the economy is going to you know, grow at 5% or so. Because people are like, China's not growing, you know, China's a, a mess, and it's growing at double the rate of the developed world, even though it's basically the size of, not quite the US, but roughly the size of the US plus Europe. And so it's growing at 5%. And I would just point out that JP Morgan, Citi, and others in the last couple of weeks have raised their 2023 forecast. They do think the economy will grow at 5%. And for us, the thing that's really interesting is, you know, what's the trigger, right? So what is the catalyst that's going to shift China, the view on China to being one of, let me sell as much as I can to yep. let me buy a little bit and then let me buy some more. And I think the catalyst and we think the catalyst is basically that China is now entering a period where for the next six months, the year-over-year -year comps are going to be exceedingly easy to beat. Mm. Because a year ago, China was in its most severe lockdowns. The other point is that history tells us from the U.S. and Europe's experience that it takes about a year post-COVID for economies and consumers in particular to really pick up the slack. And so when we look at Golden Week that just ended, you know, the data is up dramatically over a year last year. But more importantly, even up a little bit nominal terms versus what things were in terms of consumption, in terms of travel, restaurants, et cetera, from 2019. So to me, an awful lot is in the price. Yep. There's very little thought of the idea that China is going to have blowout economic numbers over the next six months. And I think those two things combined have presented us with a really significant opportunity and the last point I would mention, Andrew, is that China is already outperforming. China outperformed the U.S., Chinese equity, outperformed the U.S. in dollars in September. 
It outperformed the U.S. in dollars over the third quarter. Mm. And I expect that to continue. So while everyone, and, and as you said, very correctly, you can't turn a page or turn a channel without someone bashing China and saying it's a mess, it's horrible, blah, blah, blah. And yet, with all that, it is still outperforming. And so to mm. me, that risk reward is very appealing. And in our global multi-asset model, which I mentioned, we are significantly overweight Chinese equity. So ladies and gentlemen and young people who are listening, that was a masterclass in the way a sell-side analyst presents their views, including at the end, he hit off what are the catalysts, right? And, he, you know, you talked about year on year being easy to beat and that type of stuff. So let me just ask one other question. What's the best way for someone to play that? I know there's a bunch of different China ETFs, but is there some best one that you think has the best or the right exposure? Well, you know, that's a great question, because I think in the U.S. there's something like 40 yeah. or more China focused U.S. listed ETFs, right? So right off the bat, you've already got like way too many options to choose from. Right. And I kind of think about things in, in terms of the instrument pretty simply. So and I'll just tell you what we're invested in here in our model portfolios. We yep. have FXI, which is the China large cap with a fairly big exposure to a consumer side, because clearly both cyclically and structurally, China needs to really have its consumer engine start to roar, right? The model mm. of uh, fixed asset investment and export-driven growth, I think that's over. And I think it's pretty well accepted, even within China policy circles, that it's over. And so, you know, when you look at China vis-a-vis -vis the developed economies, you know, one thing that stands out dramatically is the savings rate is off the charts, yeah. like 30, 40 percent of GDP, I think, some crazy number like that. And then the second is that consumption as a percentage of GDP is in the 40s, whereas in the U.S. and in Europe, it's like mid 60s or even 70 percent. Mm. So there's the opportunity set for China. And I think that's going to be the thing that we expect to see really happen, as so, particularly, as I said, as COVID kind of that one year period wears off. So FXI, and then the second is KWeb, which is the uh, China internet and tech space. And I do think that the government has recognized that it has done the job in terms of putting a little pressure or more than a little on the tech companies. Mm. And so I think now they're realizing, particularly as you say, with all the U.S., China issues around advanced technology that they need their tech companies. And therefore, I think that that pressure, that kind of uh, box that they put the tech companies in is probably going to be opened up. And the China tech companies sell at a massive discount to the U.S. tech companies, just an absolute massive discount. And so those are the two ways that we're at least playing it. Okay. And for those people that are watching the video, not listening, you probably see me looking away constantly because I'm taking notes and looking on the internet to try to keep up with what you've got. So you've talked about FXI, China large cap iShares, and yeah. and then you've talked about Crane shares, I believe is the K-Web, correct? Which is yes, CSI, correct. China internet exposure. Okay. And let's just summarize what you've talked about. You've talked about, yes, they import energy, but also, you know, they're a big producer now also, and it's growing of energy, particularly wind and solar and 
also nuclear. You know, you've talked about how much, you know, it's in the price, you know, already. So it's already in there. So, you know, how much more negative can it be? You've also talked about foreign, you know, outflows and that can impact a market, you know, massively. That's one of the lessons I learned in emerging markets. It doesn't matter what you think about a particular stock. If the flows are against you, it's going to be hit. And then you talked about, and one of the things about this, you talked about the stimulus, you're saying no necessarily big stimulus coming. You mentioned that they felt like the stimulus of 2012, 2013 may have been a mistake. I know the the stimulus of 2008 was amazing. In fact, when you look at the amount of spending that's done in America, let's just take, let's just say in the last 10 years or 20 years, maybe 10 or you know, $15 trillion of debt that was went into or gone into. And what does America have to show for it? A high-speed rail network? No. Improved infrastructure, improved highway system? No. Improved education? No. Where did all that money go? But when you looked at the 2008 stimulus, it's like, holy crap, they really build up an infrastructure with that. So even if they don't do a major stimulus, their stimulus has in the past had an impact on productivity. And then you've highlighted the idea that, you know, already, okay, yeah, so it isn't growing as fast as it, as it was, but here's a massive economy with 1.4 billion people and it's growing at 5%. That ain't bad. And that's probably going to be better than, you know, the US and others. Now, let me throw out some counter arguments just so that we can have a little debate about it. You know, counter argument number one is that US dollar just keeps getting stronger and if I go into the Chinese market right now, what's the risk that the currency could get hit? And we go through a devaluation. So yes, in fact, you know, the market is interesting, but I lost on the currency. Now, some of these instruments are hedged in the US. So first one is currency. The second one is, you know, one of the things that I'm concerned about China is it's like the COVID time, it kind of beat the resilience out of a lot of people. I mean, I had some have some good friends have talked to me about really being kind of beaten. And so that's a second one. It's like, you know, was there permanent damage that makes the economy not be able to come back? And the third one that I would say is that what I learned, so first is the foreign exchange. The second is the spirit of the people who are just so entrepreneurial. And the third one is that, one of the lessons I learned from living through the Thai banking crisis is that banking crises usually start with property crises, particularly in developing markets, because the underlying collateral to loans is property. And I remember going to speak at a CFA event in Shenzhen in Southern China, and the lady who picked me up was working at the asset management company for the government. And I was like, you guys must be losing money on it. No, property market goes up. We get the assets at a cheap price. And what we got to do is manage a portfolio of you know, properties. So my point is, is that the banking sector is significant in the overall market. It's already, we're talking about 30% or something. And properties are pressure on the banking sector. You've got government that could inject into the bank sector. But what's the possibility that the bank sector just prevents the market from really having a recovery? So those... Three are kind of my my thinking at this point. What would you say in relation to those? Yeah, no, all all uh, good points, and you know, all very valid concerns for sure. I mean, I think on the currency front, the way we think about it is that you know it's a controlled currency. First of all, it's, not, it's a closed capital account, and second, China has just absolutely massive reserves, and so they control the currency. 
I believe. And therefore, the risk of a disorderly devaluation, like both of us have experienced in our emerging market careers, is extremely limited in large part because also the bulk of the debt is domestic and local currency and is not you know, foreign currency driven. So, you know, take the point about uh, strong dollar. That is for sure the case. I mean, that's been one of the big surprises for us this year. We've not anticipated the dollar to be as strong as it has been. And we're to be to be perfectly straightforward, we expect it to roll over here fairly imminently. Mm. But nonetheless, so that's our view on the currency. On the on the COVID kind of hangover, you know, we touched on it earlier, right? That the US experience, the European experience is that it takes about a year for that consumer, you know, animal spirits to kind of, you know, reignite. Mm. And so the golden week last week gives us a sense that that consumer is, is definitely, you know, better than it was even in the, the earlier spring holiday period, right? There've been some analysis of, of the two periods and, and the golden week is stronger, but, you know, we're counting on turn of the year type for that, for the consumer to come back, you know, fully robustly. And again, I think a lot of that is already in the price. Just as an example, you know, you look at the European luxury goods makers, which, you know, depend heavily on the Chinese high-end buyer and those stocks like LMVH, et cetera, they've been hammered as well. Third, the property and the financial sector, again, you know, completely appropriate concern. And I think the way we look at that is that the central government has plenty of capacity to take on more debt, like the federal government in the United States. The, cent- the Most of the debt has been taken out by local governments. And so there is a little bit of a pass the parcel kind of environment that is going to take place. But to us, the main point is that it's domestic debt, it's local currency debt, it's not dollar. I mean, there is some dollar denominated debt, but mm. not a tremendous amount. We actually own a position, an Asian high yield fund that has about 30% exposure to China real estate. And it's actually doing reasonably well as an investment opportunity, which again suggests, and that's over the last couple of weeks and months when there's been rumors again and worries about Evergrande, et cetera, you know, that. The people who are really worried about property, they're gone. They're, they haven't yeah. been invested in China in a while, and they're not going to be the first people to come back yep. either. So mm-hmm. property is an issue. They're trying to put a floor under it. I think they'll ultimately be successful with that. And it's not the area of focus, though, as I say, this Asia High Yield ETF has a dividend yield of 10% and is therefore, again, to us, you know, there's a price for everything, right? The question is, what is the price? What's in the price? And do you see upside or downside? And can you make the case? So we have had all year exposure to Asia high yield. I'm happy to give you the symbol. It's KHYB. It's another crane shares ETF. And you can take a look at the performance over the last month or so. It's yep. been been better than many things, mm. better than real estate by a, mar- by a mile. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Those are, you know, excellent, excellent points. And the one other thing that I can see from here is like, first of all, I just published a strategy piece to my client base here, and it's called Five Righteous Wars. 
And I explained how the U.S. is now engaged in five wars and how it's bankrupting America and those wars. We may have just entered war number six over the weekend, but one of those wars is a war against China. And when I listen to politicians, it's so hard to not see coming confrontation and knowing we already have you know, restrictions coming from the U.S. trying to squeeze down China. Now, of course, that's part of the reason why the market's down, right? And foreign investors are coming out and stuff. But one of my concerns is that the U.S. politicians start to do things such as limit more and more the amount of flows of capital that can go into China, or that they basically, or, or I could imagine, you know, here's a crazy thing, you know, 20 years ago, the ETF or the, let's say the MSCI Emerging Markets Asia didn't have any China in it except for eight shares in, in Hong Kong. But we knew that China was growing to become 40% of Asia X Japan, or let's say, you know, Asia Emerging Markets. And so MSCI agreed that they would slowly add this weighting of China into the indices. Now you could be faced with a situation where fund managers go back to MSCI and put pressure on them as well as politicians and say, we can't replicate this index. And therefore that has to be changed. That's a very drastic thing. I'm not saying that it's going to happen, but what I'm saying is that the political environment scares me. But again, one of the things that you know we've learned over the years is that just when you're scared, just when it seems like there's no way out is probably the time that you should be investing. But how would you address the political aspect of that? You know, again, very valid. And certainly here in the U.S., I mean, the one thing that both parties can agree on is their concern about China. So it's one of the very few bipartisan. They're pretty good at war, too. I'd say there's a lot of consensus in the in the area of war. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's quite, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's a consensus that we want to be in a war with China or mm. we will be in a war with China or that China wants to be in a war with us. I don't think so. I mean, I, I mean, my own view is that China has a lot of issues it needs to focus on internally and domestically without getting into a massive conflict that's got a lot of downside to it. I mean, I think Russia and the Ukraine is a is a pretty good deterrent to that line of thinking. Yep. But, you know, in the U.S. case, I think the point about, you know, politicians trying to reduce capital like pension fund money, that's certainly been discussed and has even there's even pieces of legislation floating around that have that as part of the legislation. There's not a lot of support for that legislation, mm. but there is that you know, those kind of bills floating around Washington, D.C. I mean, to me, I think the the likelihood of something like that is very, very small because the government doesn't want to get in the business of telling pension funds what they can and can't invest in, right? I mean, I think that's more the issue than singling out China or, you know, some other adversary at some point down the road. Now, there's definitely been a trend in the U.S. towards using kind of economic coercion to kind of drive decision-making and positioning of other countries. Certainly that's been the case. And we saw that with Russia very, very visibly over the last 18 months or so. And so it is a risk. To me, is that imminent? You know, again, go back to the catalyst question. Yep. Is that something that's likely to happen imminently? I don't think so. 
and therefore it's not really a focus for the time frame that I'm talking about, which again, very clearly stated, yep. this quarter and next quarter, the next six months is really what I'm looking at as an opportunity. As we progress over time, you know, we'll reassess where we stand, but the issues of, of the geopolitical nature, I think are actually getting better, right? I mean, President Xi and President Biden sounds like they're going to meet on the sidelines of the APEC meeting in San Francisco in a month or so. You know, that's a big step forward versus where we were, you know, whenever the spy balloon you know, was floating over the U.S. Yeah. and Lincoln was supposed to go to China and we got it canceled. So I think both sides realize they that, you know, the idea of separating completely from China is just just not a real like realistic thought. It maybe right. sounds good when you're on the hustings out in Iowa or something, but it's not reality. Right. I mean, the two economies are way too intertwined. What's being focused on is the very top of the tech pyramid where, you know, the real exclusive high end stuff. Uh, yes, the U.S. wants to kind of keep that stuff for itself. And China is trying to get there increasingly on its mm. own. And, you know, we'll see how all that plays out. That's a big that's a subject that we've been talking about at TPW for a couple of years. We talked about SplinterNet and the tech ecosystem splintering. That was stuff that, you know, you can go on our website and see our history of what we've been writing about. We were writing about that a couple of years ago. I don't think that's, hmm. you know, that's like news to people per se. Okay. And um, just looking at the, the PE of the market, it's derated from about 18 times at its recent peak down to about 13 times. So, and I think what's also critical is, you know, you've made clear about your time frame that in some ways you could argue this is a this is it's a little bit of a trading idea as opposed to let's say a, a long term hey this is the next 3 years this is the place to be exposed so definitely i take your points on that and i think the argument is is strong let's now go into one other thing that we wanted to talk about briefly before we went into your story and that is you know you you've had a few lessons that you've learned that are i would say let's say general lessons about investing and you know all that maybe you could just share a couple of those and then after that we'll get into your story yeah sure and i'd be happy to do that because yes over the career that i'm sure we both have had we both had some success we both had some failure you know in the investment world it's uh kind of like being a baseball player right if you bat 300 in american baseball you're like a superstar <laughs> so for, you know, for us in the investing world, you know, it's it's kind of like you want to stay in the game, right? You don't want to take such a big loss that you're out of the game and you want to make, you know, singles and doubles, I think, more than home runs. So one of the lessons when you invited me to come on your show, for which I'm very grateful, mm -hmm. I was thinking about, you know, what would we talk about? And one of the lessons, so not the not the worst investment ever, but one lesson that has always stuck with me, and it's now, you know, 30 plus years ago, was in 1990, I had just been hired at Morgan Stanley on the asset management side. And I was told to go down to Brazil and start a Brazil fund. And it was Morgan Stanley working in conjunction. You may remember back in the day when the World Bank, the IFC, yep. arm of the World Bank, was involved in helping create you know, country ETFs and country funds mm. to stimulate foreign capital flow. 
And so it was Morgan Stanley and the World Bank trying to develop a uh, fund for Brazil. And we could not raise any money. It was the period of hyperinflation in Brazil. And it was, you know, the economy was a mess. And, and we really struggled to raise any money whatsoever. We finally got the fund off the ground because a gentleman that you mentioned when we were talking offline, Barton Biggs, who at that time was the chairman of Morgan Stanley Asset Management, was good friends with Julian Robertson, mm. Iger fame. And Julian like said to Barton, okay, I'll put in, you know, whatever, 10 million, 15 million to make sure the fund had enough of a corpus to actually launch. And so it was a great lesson in the time to invest versus the time to market. It was absolutely not the time to market a Brazil fund. There was no interest. Mm. <laughs> Nobody wanted to participate. But it was absolutely the right time to invest. And if you go back and look, the dollar low, all-time dollar low for the Brazilian stock market was 1990, 1991, okay? Because they were able to, to get hold of inflation Inflation collapsed, the currency stabilized, it went up, you know, dramatically in dollar terms. And, you know, it was a great success over a period of years. But it was a lesson that always stuck with me. And when I see things like just in the last year or two, right, the whole IPO craze or the GameStop, mm. and the crypto craze, it, you know, always sticks with me. The time to invest versus the time to market. They are not. Most of the time, they are not the same thing. Right. So that's one. And then yeah. the other one that I thought of is also when in my sell side strategy days. Well, that was a buy side. That was my buy side day. Mm. But so fun. Then I became Latin American strategist for Morgan Stanley before going on to do emerging and then global. So in my emerging market days, we would go and go on a marketing trip, right, to Europe or wherever. And you usually start on the continent, you know, in, in Holland or in Germany or in France or someplace, and you gradually wind your way towards London because London was where the money was, right? So it's almost like being off Broadway and getting ready to go on to Broadway. So you get all the kinks of your story out and in the continent. And the last stop before London is in Scotland, in Edinburgh. Because the Scots are always very tough. Yes. And they will they will really pick holes in your story. And so there I was in, in Edinburgh at a lunch, you know, the featured speaker. I can't even remember, to be honest, Andrew, what, what we were uh, touting at that point as a sell-side strategist. But I somebody raises their hand and says, so like, you know, what's the biggest risk that you see to your thesis? And I just froze because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was so like into my bullish story that I couldn't, you know, I didn't have any big risks. And that was another great lesson, right? You always have to lay out the risks. And so hopefully you've seen just in our conversation how over the years I've been able to shift from not being able to talk about what the risk is to talking about risk and reward. So that second lesson is, you know, no matter how bullish you are, no matter how appealing the story looks, identify the risks and be mm -hmm. able to articulate them and be able to weigh them 
so that you can figure out the risk reward. And then that helps you then figure out, you know, position size, which when mm-hmm. you get into portfolio construction, obviously, you know, how you weight different bits and pieces of the portfolio is pretty important. So those are yeah. those are two uh, interesting stories. That one, I mean, it was so embarrassing. The guy who I was marketing with at the time for years would bring up that story of Jay being completely silent when this guy just, and then the, the guy's like, dude, like, what are you kidding me? You don't have yeah. any? <laughs> yeah, the Scots <laughs> are tough. It was, it was yeah. a rough end of that lunch. <laughs> so two core lessons. There's a time to, to invest and there's a time to market the idea or the investment. You talked about the hyperinflation in Brazil and I'm thinking about hyperinflation in Argentina right now. And then the other one is, you know, always lay out the risks. I'll tell you a funny story. When I moved to Thailand in 1992, I became an analyst in 93 and I didn't leave the country for two and a half years for the first, you know, when I first came, but my boss asked me to go to New York and present at an institutional investor conference, which, you know, was full of people looking at emerging markets and there's China coming up, you know, and all that. And then I, I went around to visit, you know, fund managers for my first time face to face. And I remember like probably my first presentation, I had a bank sector report that I'd written and I was talking about bank on bank and other banks. And then I went into there and I presented my pitch and all that. And I left, I felt pretty good about myself. Like I did a pretty good job. They were very nice, you know, got in the elevator. I was alone with this salesman and he said, don't ever do that again. (laughs) And I was like, what, what, what did I do? He said, you sat there and talked about the pros and cons of a bank up bank. Well, you know, it could be a buy and these are the reasons and it could be a sell and these are the reasons. And, you know, I went the other way feeling like I needed to cover all bases. And that's where I learned that you got to come up with your opinion as a sell side analyst. And that's, you know, what we've been talking about. But I think your point is, is very well taken that you just have to accept that you could be wrong. And if you're wrong and you're managing money or you're advising someone, you know, what's the risk? And it could be serious and you have to think about how do you mitigate that risk? So I think great, great lessons. And now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Yeah, that's, uh, I've got the one that, that I always reflect on for sure. Again, and the good news is, right, that you want to get these lessons hopefully out early in your career, Right. You want to take hits early in your career, not late in your career, because obviously the exposure should hopefully not be as great. So uh, happy to say that most of the things we've talked about and the one we will talk about all occurred 20 to 25 years ago. That's not to say I haven't had mistakes in the intervening period, for sure. I've had many, but uh, the ones that really stick with you are those early ones and tends to be the case. So back again to the 1990s, Latin America, emerging market, now strategist. I had shifted from the buy side at Morgan Stanley Asset Management to Morgan Stanley, the sell side broker. I was the Latin American strategist, was the head of the research department, had hired all these people. And we were, you know, doing a lot of IPO business again, because it was the emerging market enthusiasm days. And a lot of people who were S&P investors were peeling off 5 or 10% of their exposure and putting it in emerging markets so they could juice their returns relative to the S&P. 
And so there I was telling the story of Latin America. And at this point now, we were talking about Mexico. So you may, given your experience, know where I'm leading to on this, but I was bullish Mexico. And, you know, people were getting concerned. You know, there was concern about, again, debt and foreign currency debt and the risk of perhaps a devaluation in Mexico. And so I went on vacation and I was in the Pacific Northwest in California and I was camping and hiking through the uh, Pacific Northwest. And, you know, when you when you go camping or you're out in the woods at night and you hear all these sounds and it's like it sounds scary. And, you know, what if there's a bear in the woods? Right. So, of course, you know, being like a creative sell side guy, I decide I'm going to write a piece when I come back about Mexico and devaluation fears and how it's just like going camping and hearing bears in the woods. In other words, you know, don't worry. Mexico's not going to devalue. Everything is going to be fine. Stay invested. And lo and behold, you know, we know what happens next, <laughs> given the title of your show. Mm. The government devalues in the middle of the night. I'll never forget. I got a phone call in the middle of the night saying, you know, they've just pulled the plug. <laughs> They're devalued. Things are down like all sorts of percentages in the 20, 30 percent type, you know, fall like, like that. Right. And I had to go in front of the sales force and, you know, say I got it wrong. I had to articulate how I got it wrong. I was the poster child. I was number one in II as a mm-hmm. Latin American strategist. And so I was the poster child in the Wall Street Journal for how Wall Street got Mexico wrong. There I was, you know, Jay Pulaski, Morgan Stanley, II number one, completely wrong. And the great thing, the thing that really stuck with me subsequent to that mm. was after I faced the sales force and, you know, got beaten up pretty badly and, you know, it was not pretty, but I'm out now in the corridor after going through the sales force presentation and Byron Ween, who was the U.S. strategist for Morgan Stanley at the time and is now vice chairman at Blackstone, Byron pulled me aside. And here's what he told me. You can be wrong at the top and you can be wrong at the bottom. You cannot be wrong at the top and the bottom. (laughs) So, So in other words, you better figure out where the bottom is and get people in at that bottom. And it was great because, you know, he was senior and he Mm. was experienced way more than me. And, you know, he like, it was like drops of wisdom, right? And it was put it behind you. You're, You're wrong. Right. It's like a great quarterback in football or a great hitter. You know, they don't think about the time they throw an interception or the last time they struck out. Every time they get up to bat, it's a fresh at bat and they approach it as such. And so for me, it was a great lesson about, you know, hindsight and not looking back and not infusing to be, you know, kind of tarred with the brush of the guy who got it wrong. Right. Mm. Yes, I was the guy who got it wrong for a period of time, but Byron was focusing me on the future and making sure I got it right 
going forward. And so it was, you know, it wasn't like you're an idiot, you're a dope, <laughs> get away from me, which is kind of what I was expecting. Yes. It was like, you know, buck up, young man. You know, this is the game is only half, it's halftime. It's not the end of the game. And you've got to, your job is to now nail the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, you know, and I went on, I had a very good career at Morgan Stanley. I, I went from Latin American strategist to a global emerging markets to global equities, all the way to head of global asset allocation strategy at Morgan Stanley. And so I was able to, you know, take that hit and it was a big hit and it was super embarrassing and it was mm. really, really tough to deal with. But, you know, and I tell my kids and other young people who work mm. with me and who I talk to, you know, you're not, that's who you are at the moment, but that's not, that doesn't predicate who you're going to be. Yeah. So it was really great advice. You mm. can be wrong at the top, you can be wrong at the bottom, but you cannot be wrong at both. <laughs> so besides that, how would you summarize? That's a great, you know, summary right there of a lesson, but how would you summarize the lessons that you learned from this experience? Well, I think you have to have a pretty thick skin to be an investor, mm-hmm. right? to be in the markets, because you're you're going to get stuff wrong. This is, a, you know, we're dealing with the future. Nobody knows the future. And, you know, if you're a sell side strategist or if you're a portfolio manager or an analyst, you know, you're talking about the future. So you've got to be able to handle being wrong. And it's not for everybody, right? You've mm-hmm. got to be able to handle being wrong publicly. As I said, I was the poster child for mm-hmm. Wall Street getting Mexico wrong as a mm-hmm. relatively young guy. That was not the kind of publicity I was looking for, nor <laughs> what the firm was looking for. And, you know, you have to be able to shake it off, understand yep. kind of where you went wrong. Yep. To be honest, you know, I didn't spend a huge amount of time going back mm-hmm. and saying, oh, I should have done this or I should have seen that. It was more about, okay, you know, next play, what are we going to do now? Where mm-hmm. do we go here. So that yeah. forward-looking, forward-thinking approach, I think, is very valuable and very yeah. important to have. And the recognition that, you know, yeah, you were wrong, and we move forward, and you're going to get the next one right. And yeah. I think those were lessons that really have stuck with me ever since. And mm. again, as I said, I've been in this business for 25 years since then, and I'm still here, and, you know, still making mistakes, but still so focusing forward. And, yep. you know, excited about, you know, this is a great business. And I can mm. tell from the books behind you that you have a similar view that, you know, this is this is really intellectually challenging work, but it's in the real world. It's not a PhD on something. It's real world activity, you know, real dollars and cents, you know, constantly changing variables, interacting in very unique and different ways, as we've seen just in the last couple of years. Mm. And, you know, you have the opportunity to try to puzzle through that, either yourself or in a firm or with colleagues, partners and clients. And that's a wonderful opportunity to have. And I've been very fortunate in my career to, you know, be able to continue to work at what I really love to do, which is why I'm still doing it at this very advanced age. (laughs) Advanced age. Well, let me just summarize a couple of quick things. You know, from my perspective, one of the lessons I've learned is that Sometimes you're you're right. It's just that it's just the wrong time. So, you know, you can be right about a particular stock as an example, and then you you say, okay, now's the time to buy. And then it falls by 20% because of something that, you know, is going on. And actually buying at that 20% down 
was the right time. It's just that you can never time it. So the first thing is that you can be right, but at the wrong time. The second thing, you know, the critical thing here is, I think the advice you got was incredible because the point is you don't want to be wrong on the, you know, both the top and the bottom or else you're going to get destroyed. You're going to get run out of the business basically by the sales force. And that's another point that many people who haven't worked on the sell side, you know, don't know about the impact of the sales force. You know, it's very critical. And at, at a big firm, there's a lot of salespeople relying and they're trying to figure out who to rely on. But you also have to remember that everybody's day comes up. You know, if your day doesn't come up that you messed up in your your recommendation didn't work, then you've never taken any big risk because, you know, you've got to take the risk. And the point is from a management perspective, when you're managing sell-side analysts, it's at that point where they're taking a risk and they're wrong. That's a time that a manager needs to be supportive because it's easy to be supportive when you're right. And so, you know, I think that's another critical one. And it's also, you know, there's not only that, there's regulatory pressures that come in these days from the SEC and companies complain and people complain. And then all of a sudden we had a particular case here in Thailand where a company complained about an analyst who was wrong and they had some arguments. But at that time I was president of CFA Society and I remember talking to the head of the SEC at the time, just saying that, just be careful if the analyst was doing his job and he wasn't like grossly negligent in what he was doing and he had his everything covered, which I knew he did, then basically if you punish him, then there's nobody is going to take risks. So that's a whole nother aspect. The other thing it reminded me of episode 597 with a, a guy that was a friend of mine and has been a friend. And I've known him for, since he was in Thailand many years ago, he's in the US now, his name's Lance Depew. And he basically had a particular stock idea that he was in and it just went down and 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 down until eventually he exited at this, you know, very, very, very low price. And it had been, you know, decade that he'd been trying to make that work. And the title of that particular episode, I titled it, you're going to lose despite your best efforts. And that the point that I would make that final point of my takeaways is that you will lose, get ready. And if you're taking risk, you're definitely going to lose. And even the best people are going to lose. So it's just part of the game. Anything you would add to that? I mean, yeah, there, there are a couple of things. One, you know, I love your uh, approach there. And, and the way I put it is that, you know, the only person, again, to use like a baseball analogy, the only person who hasn't struck out is the person who hasn't swung the bat, right? In other words, if you're going to be in this business, you're going to make mistakes. And that gets to your second point about, you know, Okay, if you're going to be wrong, then, you know, how wrong are you willing to be? And that's why people, you know, a lot of people have different ways of dealing with the downside, mm-hmm. right? If you look at like the top hedge funds, they have risk managers, right? And they walk around and if you're down more than two or 3%, you're out. They force you to get out of the position because they really don't want to take drawdowns. Then there's others who have a more flexible approach to when they take losses when they force themselves as a rule to cut and be gone. So they don't face that, that, you know, that drain of like, you know, big, big, big drawdowns. Because again, if you want to stay in the game, you can't afford to have lots of big drawdowns. You can take, you can take a strikeout or two or three, but you can't 
you can't take, you know, nine strikeouts in a row or whatever the mm-hmm. case may be. So I think there's, and that for us at TPW Advisory really is that, you know, the positioning size, how we size positions, how long we're going to stay in positions, why we frame the China trade as a yep. trade, very specific time frame as opposed to a, an investment. And we tend to be long-term type investors. We're not mm-hmm. traders, but that, you know, those are some of the issues around that. Okay. Accepting that you're going to be wrong is critical. And then assessing, you know, how you protect yourself from yourself mm. in terms of being wrong and not having it carry you out of the business, whether you're an analyst who gets things wrong too often and you're, you're let go or a PM who's underperforming yep. is let go or a private investor who has a lifestyle that they're funding and they can't afford that lifestyle anymore. Mm. So, I mean, all those things, you know, it behooves one to have a plan for not only when things go right, (laughs) but, you know, for when things go wrong. Okay, here's the toughest question in my podcast. Most people can't answer it the way I ask it. So I'm going to give you a challenge. This question, I want to now think about a young man or woman out there early in their career. They're very excited about a particular idea. They've been seeing, they're digging, they're deep into it. They're writing about it. And also just keeping in mind something that you said, which is that you're careful to kind of position and communicate the type of trade it is because sometimes beginners hear other people talking and they think, oh my God, these guys are doubling down on it when in fact they're only putting an extra 2% in it. But here's this young person early in their career. They're so caught up in this story that they've got, but you see the risks. What's one action that you'd recommend that they take to avoid suffering the same fate? I would suggest talking it over with someone who's got more experience Mm. so that they can, um, you know, not only that, that way they articulate it and force themselves to be able to articulate it. As I said, I think that's really critical. It's the old story of like, you know, you don't know anything until you teach somebody that Mm. thing. So I think I'm a big believer in you know, I taught a graduate level course for for a decade or so, and a lot, a big chunk of the course was people getting up and making their own investment cases. So I think there's a lot to be said for making, for articulating the case mm. to someone or some people who are more experienced, who yeah. will give them an honest read on what their bullish view is. And then, you know, probably ask them to identify some of the risks, yep. which uh, will be uh, a very valuable lesson. So that I think there's a lot to be said when you're young and starting out to lean on the counsel of others who have experience, because most people who have experience are going to be happy to kind of yeah. talk with younger people about, you know, their point of view and, and how they're doing it. And so there's usually not a lot of resistance to 10 minutes over a cup of coffee. You know, let me give you my my spiel. Tell me what you think. And uh, I think that's uh, that's a good way of making sure you're not, you know, over your skis too far and in danger of really making a big mistake. All right. So what's a resource either of yours or any other resource that you'd recommend for our listeners? In terms of? Well, I guess about investing, about life, about what helped you, you know, what are some some ideas that you've got as far as, you know, a young person? Is it 
read a book or is it to, you know, whatever you got? Yeah, no, that's that's great. I mean, I do uh, a fair bit of mentoring and I have I have interns at my company who are, mm. you know, young, some still in college, some MBA types, etc. And I'm a big believer in having people put their money where their mouth is. So I encourage people even in you can do it today very easily for very low cost, you know, establish your own portfolio. Mm. It can be paper at first if you want. But, you know, force yourself to think about some of the very things we've mm. talked about here, right, Andrew, uh, positioning size, you know, multiple investment ideas, because you're mm. not going to put all your eggs in one basket. Yep. Be able to articulate to yourself and then over time to others why you have those positions such that you do. Mm. But I think, like, if you're trying to get into the business, I just had this conversation last week with someone. If you're trying to get into the business of Wall Street or investing, capital markets, whatever the case may be, I think being able to tell people that you have been building your own portfolio or you have been trading on your own account or you have been putting your own personal money at risk, that goes a long way. Having skin in the game at a young age, and it doesn't have to be a lot of money. It doesn't have to be all your money. It shouldn't be all your money. It's the idea that you have skin in the game, that you believe in yourself mm. so much that you're willing to bet on yourself. And by showing that you're willing to bet on yourself, you go a long way towards encouraging others to consider to bet on you. Yep. Great, great advice. And it's surprising the number of people that don't have the portfolio and that type of background that then come in and apply. All right, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? <laughs> number one goal for the next 12 months. Wow, that's uh, that's an excellent, excellent question. I guess to have a good portfolio performance mm -hmm. is probably uh, up, uppermost in my mind. We have a pretty good track record here going back a dozen years and we want to try and keep it that way. So, yep. you know, continuing to identify the opportunities and avoid pitfalls in the markets and be able to provide a service to my clients, most importantly, because that's how we do it through our clients, to provide a service to our clients that we can be proud of. Great. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And this helped a lot today. As we conclude, Jay, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, thank you very much, Andrew. It's been a great discussion. I appreciate your questions and the opportunity to tell some of my stories. It's always fun. My kids are tired of hearing them, hearing them so happy to share them with your audience and to get a degree at the same time is excellent. Thank you very much. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.